You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Citizens Church. Good to see you all. As you know, we've been in a study in the book of Daniel for a while now. We have seen Daniel... Uh, as a young man up to this point, we have seen him interpret dreams, give counsel to Nebuchadnezzar, rise to the highest consultant in the kingdom. But that was then. And this story that Carter just read is now. A lot has changed since even one chapter ago, because now Nebuchadnezzar is gone. His son and grandson are, are jointly ruling the empire of Babylon. Daniel, he's no longer a young man, and the empire of Babylon is no longer what it once was. It is weakening. It is beginning to crumble, and there's a new power, a new empire on the rise, the Medo-Persian Empire, who is advancing and already laying siege to several parts of the empire of Babylon. So a lot has changed in just a few decades This is not the same Daniel, not the same empire, not the same situation it once was. And in this story, we see a very important lesson. Uh, We are taught something that everybody is looking for, but is in short supply of, which is this, security. Every single one of us long for, look for security. And so we're taught about that today. Here's the four points that we're walking through in this story. One, what is faulty hope? Two, what does it produce? Three, what is true hope? And lastly, what does true hope produce? So what's faulty hope and what's the result? What's true hope and what is the result? So we got some good things ahead of us. Let's go ahead and pray before we jump into it. Father, we ask that you be with us today and that you would... Help us, Lord, to not look to things and to people um, for our sense of security, for our sense of safety, for our sense of wholeness, that everything will be okay, God. I pray that you would convince us by your word through this story, through this testimony of Daniel's life, that you alone are the one true source of, of security, that you are our one last and final hope and that we should build our lives on you. You, Father, are sure and steady foundation. Nothing else is. So God, I pray that you would convict us where we have been placing our security in other things, that you would give us eyes and wisdom and discernment to see how those things have been uh, harming us and how they've been changing us and how they have been commanding us in all the wrong ways, God. I pray that you just give us some real self-awareness today. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So what is faulty hope? All of us want security. All of us are looking for security. And so where should we not be looking? All right. So what is faulty hope? First, let me set this story a little bit more in its historical context to give you some more, just a few details to get you up to speed here. It's been 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar has been king. So he died. He died as a follower of God. He died, and the kingdom was prospering and abundant like it never had been before. But now it's been over two decades, and his son, Nabonidus, and the grandson, Belshazzar, are jointly ruling the kingdom of empire. Specifically, uh, Belshazzar is ruling the very city of Babylon. That's where he is ruling 
And during this period, like I said before, there's a new empire, the Media Persia Empire, led by Darius, or his other name is Cyrus. And they've grown in power, and they've already begun to advance into the Babylonian Empire and conquer in many different places. And what we know from history is that Babylon is on its last legs here. That everybody knows who's in political power at this time. Everybody knows who's in the cabinet at this time, that the end is imminent, that Babylon does not have much time left. Everybody knows that. Everybody feels that defeat is imminent. Yet, what is Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, doing at this moment in this time where things are shaky, where things are crumbling? He is throwing this excessive, immoral, debauched rager, okay? He is throwing this massive party filled with wine and debauchery. Now, you have to wonder, with the Persian Empire breathing down their necks uh, and with a sense that defeat is inevitable, why would he be throwing this excessive party? Why would this be occurring? Here's why. Because Babylon the Great, the city of Babylon, is surrounded by 40-foot walls all around it. It is staffed with soldiers. It has supplies and food that will last for years. And so Belshazzar and his friends and his wives and all these people within the city, they're untouchable, they think. Everything can happen outside these walls. That will happen, but nobody's getting in here. We can outlast them. We can stay here and party. And more than that, besides those things, those, those uh, sources of confidence, the walls and the, what they had within those walls. They also had these gods, the gods of, way, of, of wood and stone, those materials that was covered in verse 4. Uh, and it says that they drank in front of them and partied in front of them. Why would they do that? It's because this is a way to appease the gods. This is a way to uh, acquire from the gods their favor, to appease them. And so they set up these idols uh, made of all these materials and acted in worship so these gods would give them favor. So what Daniel makes clear is that Belshazzar's hope, what is his hope? What is his security? It's these walls. It's his defenses, it's his supplies, and it's his performance that he can do enough, party enough to appease these gods and to get their favor. So here's what all these things have in common, okay? I want you to notice this. His, his walls, his supplies, his performance, here's what they all have in common. They are all seemingly in his control. All of those things are under his management. All of those things are manageable, Right? Belshazzar has placed his hope in things that are manageable, but don't roll your eyes too fast because we put our hope in things that are manageable too, things like work, things like money, things like relationships, things like people, things like romance. We put our things, our hope, our security in things that seem like they are in our control. So here's the question. How does that go? How does that hope Hold up. Things that seem manageable, things that seem like they're in your control. How does that go? How does that hold up? Look at verses 5 and 6. It says this, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. We'll dig in these verses later. We're going to touch on these verses later. But what's obvious, the obvious observation is that Belshazzar's hope instantly melts away. And so what makes a hope a faulty hope? 
what makes a hope a faulty hope. It's when the thing that you place your security in, your sense of security in, is something that is able to be managed. That's what makes your hope a faulty hope, is if the thing you put your confidence in is in your control and manageable. Because here's the reality. If something managed is where you derive your security, you will never, ever have it. Because the truth is, nothing is promised. The truth is, nothing is truly controllable. The truth is, life is not in our control. It is unpredictable. It is unfair. There are too many variables at any given moment, at any given time, that make something safe and secure or not. And those things are actually not in our control at all whatsoever. So what seems like it is safe and controllable and manageable is actually really, in reality, not so at all. It's not really up to us. It's not really under our management. And so take Belshazzar's hope, his hope, his walls, his supplies, his defenses, his performance. Take those things, for example. Those all seem very controllable, don't they? Those are under his reign. They're under his operation. They seem very controllable, but the reality is none of those things can promise with absolute certainty, absolute certainty that it's going to be okay, that he and his kingdom and his people are going to make it. Those things are not promised. There's always a small chance that something's going to go wrong. There's always a small chance that they could fail. So when he sees this finger appear on the wall and write this ominous message, obviously something spooky and something is wrong, something wrong is happening, his sense of security and what he imagined happening because of his hope is disturbed. It's all it's starting to crack. It's all starting to crumble. So the, here's the answer. What is a faulty hope? A faulty hope is anything that seems manageable and makes you feel secure because that's not realistic and that's not how life goes. Nothing is manageable forever and nothing, no person, no thing, no occupation, no source, whatever it may be, nothing can possibly begin to guarantee you with 100% certainty that it will give to you security. It's just not possible. So if your sense of security is in people, people change. People come and go. People are flaky. They pass on. If your sense of security is in work, companies relocate. Companies restructure. What if your new boss doesn't like you? What if the economy tanks? What if you can't output to the standard that the company wants you to? If your sense of security is in romance, what if their feelings change? What if your feelings change? your sense of security is in your moral performance, what if you stumble? What if you get found out? What if you can't keep up with your own standards? So see, things that seem like they're going to make you feel okay, like it's all going to be okay, that are within our grasp, under our management, aren't actually under our management. It's just not true. See, faulty hope, it's tricky because things that are in our control seem to be able to give us security. It only makes sense that they'd be able to make us feel okay, but the very fact that they are in our control, that they seem like they are under our management, is the problem itself. And so, that kind of hope, what does it produce? What is that going to do to us? Well, what does it do to Belshazzar? Look at verse 6 again. It says this, Then the king's color changed, And his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And actually, the phrase, his limbs gave way, the literal translation there is um, his loins loosened, meaning he went to the bathroom. 
So that's what happened. He literally goes to the bathroom right then and there. Then in verse 7, he makes this desperate plea. Look at verse 7. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. You remember Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 when he had that ominous dream that uh, the statue that was built was going to be uh, crushed by the stone. You remember how he goes from, from skeptical of his counsel to then swings to the other extreme of being desperate and just erratic and wanting a solution, and then he turns cruel and ruthless. He's just all over the place because he feels like things are out of control. The same thing is happening here with his grandson. He sees this finger writing on the wall, this ominous, ominous foreboding message, this event is occurring that makes him feel like all sense of security and control is slipping away. And what happens to him? He literally wets his pants and then makes this desperate call, this excessive, desperate call for anyone to come and solve this problem for him. If we were to summarize what Belshazzar's faulty hope produces in him, we would say it produces great anxiety and desperation great anxiety and desperation. And this is a continual theme that we mentioned all throughout the book of Daniel so far, that what you put your hope in and what you put your trust in, what you invest yourself into that's going to make you feel like it's going to be okay is going to have a direct power over you. It's going to command who you become. It's going to have a transformative effect on you. Psalm 115, remember we read that last week? It says, those who make idols and those who put their trust in idols become like them. Okay, it's a, it's a biblical idea all throughout the pages of Scripture that what you worship, what you trust in, what you hope in is going to transform who you are. And so here's a man, Belshazzar, who has put his security in his walls and they were just invaded by this hand. And now he is fearful. Here's a man who has put his security in himself and his performance and how he can appease the gods. And he has no answers now for what he is seeing. Here's a man who has put his security in these gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They're dead gods. They're lifeless. And now he himself has lost his life. It has lost his vitality. He has lost his color. His limbs give way. The moment, the very moment his security is disturbed, the very moment his security dries up, so does his confidence and so does his happiness. That's what faulty hope produces. It produces anxiety. It produces desperation, hopelessness. And look, this reality that I'm talking about here in Daniel chapter 5, centuries ago, this reality is so crystal clear in our time. We, in the Western culture here, have the most money, the most medical and technological innovation, <laughs> the most intelligence in national defense, the best intelligence in national defense than any other time in history, in any other country on earth, past or present, yet, think about this, with all that said, we are the most anxious and we are the most desperate, desperate and depressed and medicated group of people ever. How is that possible? How is it possible to have all of these high-caliber sources of security, yet at the same time be absolutely riddled, fragmented with anxiety? How is that possible? It's because all of those things have a high probability 
They can't guarantee. And listen, our hearts long for nothing less than that guarantee. Our hearts long for nothing less than 100% certainty that we're going to be cared for, that it's going to be okay, that's all going to work out. That's what we long for. Now look, I'm not saying those things are bad. Like innovation, wonderful. That's a, that's a gift of God. Uh, money's not a bad thing. None of these things are bad that I'm talking about, but and I'm not, and I'm not, and just to be clear, I'm not calling every instance of anxiety and depression a sin. But here's what I am saying. I am saying that it is evident that increases of sources of security under our management have not resulted in guaranteed peace. And I would add this, they seem to have only intensified the feeling of insecurity when they fail to promise peace. So if you are anxious, and if you feel desperate, and if you feel like your hope just comes and goes, comes and goes, and it's erratic, and you go between one extreme to the next, and if you're just commanded by circumstances and what you're hearing and what you're... If that is you, then you have to look at your life, you have to examine your life, and you have to detect where are you tapping into for your security? Where are you locating your security in? And the mistake you are making is the same mistake that Belshazzar is making. You are placing a burden of expectation on people and on things and on sources to make you feel like you're safe and to make you feel like it's going to be okay and all things are going to work out when those things can't possibly meet that expectation and bear the weight of that expectation. They were never meant to. It's not going to work. The problem is not the walls. The problem is not the supplies. The problem is not innovation. The problem is not money and the defense. and mil- Those things are not wrong. The wrong thing is our expectation on them to guarantee for us peace. It's our unrealistic expectation that they promise us that everything is going to be okay. So our faulty hope is anything that seems like it's in our control because that's not realistic. And what that does to us is it just stirs within us all sorts of anxiety and desperation. Now, I think we would all agree that we don't want to live like that. That, that, that. That's not how life should go. We would reject Belshazzar's way of thinking and living. But listen here. It would be wrong to merely just reject that, to just reject that way of living, putting our hope in false sources of hope. It would be wrong to just merely reject that. That would be stopping short. Because what happens if we just reject those things is we end up becoming very stoic people. Stoicism is uh, a life that is detached from everything, a life that is unaffected by anything. It's just this coldness, this... uh, um, impenetrableness. Stoicism is not God's will for us. God does not want us to just turn from false sources of hope and become stoics. God's will for us is that we turn from false sources of hope and turn to something that is going to fill us and cause us to have a carefree attitude about ourselves. A undefeatable joy, a triumphant joy about ourselves 
God's will for us is not to be detached and unaffected, but have a lightness in life, to have a thankfulness in life, to be stirred to wonder with thanksgiving. I mean, God wants us to be blessed, to be happy, but not because of circumstances, not because of people and things, but because of Him, because of Christ. God wants us to put our hope in Christ. That is our true hope. Now you might say, this is Daniel. This is the Old Testament. I don't see Jesus' name on any of this. And I would agree with you. His name's not here, but he is hinted at. And he is hinted at so dramatically that it's almost as if his name is written on these pages. Let me go ahead and show you three things in here that characterize for us what true hope is, true hope in Christ. There's three things I'll point out. There's probably more, but I'm just going to come up with three, okay? So first here is the lampstand. It says that that lampstand, across from the lampstand, there was a hand with writing on the wall. You remember Belshazzar? He took all of those supplies that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in, in Judah, and he, he brought them back to, back to Babylon, and he throws this party with all of those items from the temple. The lampstand is one of those things. The lampstand is from the temple, and in the temple, listen here, this is really interesting. In the temple, on one side of, of the inner court, of, inside the temple, is the lampstand where it's radiating light. Opposite from it, where it's radiating light onto, is uh, what's called the showbread. It's 12 loaves of bread that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. What it represents is God's favor on them, God's faithfulness to them, that He's always going to care for them, that He's always going to uh, provide for them and defend them, you know, on and on and on. But here, and if you're an original reader, okay, if you're reading this in exile, you're, you're noticing this, that that lampstand, it's not in the temple, it's in this party, but it's doing the exact same thing that it did in the temple, which is it's radiating light across the room onto something. What is it radiating light onto? This hand that's writing on the wall. And they put two and two together. They would realize that, and this is really important, they would realize that in a place where hope is unlikely, in a place where hope seems absolutely absent, they're in exile after all, God's favor is still there. God's presence is still there. God's pledge to care for His people and be faithful to His people is still there even when it doesn't feel like it. So we have the lampstand. Okay, we got the lampstand here. We also have the hand. This hand shows up and writes this message on the wall. And again, if you're an original reader and you're reading Daniel with sensitivity and you're paying attention to the details, you remember that there's a hand that shows up earlier in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2. It says that there was a stone cut by no human hand that plows into that statue and destroys it and sets up a kingdom that will never, ever, ever, ever end. And here in Daniel 5 is a hand that's writing on the wall bringing about the doom and end of the Babylonian empire. And later on in verse 23, in verse 23, it says that Belshazzar is told that his breath and ways are in God's hands. So what's the idea here? What's being communicated through this hand that shows up all throughout the book of Daniel that's made mention twice here in Daniel chapter 5? Here's the point. That all of us are in God's hands, that all of our times, all of our ways, how things go, they're all in his hands. And for Belshazzar, who's this 
uh, selfish, unjust ruler, it's, that's negative news. That's bad news because his kingdom is being brought to an empire. But listen, if you're numbered among God's people, if you're numbered among God's people, if he has pledged himself to you, then the, the reality that your life and your ways are in his hands is really good news because it means that he is turning all things for your good. That's what we just sang about, that he is somehow finding a way according to his capable hands and his genius mind to make all things for your good, for your growth, for your sanctification, for your Christ-likeness. God finds a way through his capable hands. And so we have a lampstand and we have a hand. And what they convey so far is that God is faithful, that he is reliable, that he cares. Okay? We have one more, one more item though. And this is, I think, the coolest one of them all. We have the prophet. We have Daniel himself. And so remember, Daniel, he's writing the story. This is Daniel's uh, recounting of things. And so he's choosing his words and his phrases really, really carefully. Everything in here is intentional that he writes. His words he uses are intentional. And so we miss things that, that as modern readers, that original readers would totally understand and that they would pick up on, which is this. Here's what, here's what Daniel's doing here. He's portraying himself. He's portraying himself in the mold of a prophet that brings about salvation for God's people. Another way to say it is this, Daniel, it's like he sees himself as an installment in this pattern of prophets all throughout the Bible that brings about salvation, who brings about salvation for God's people. I'll go and explain it. If you read in verse 7, look, look here at the details. I'll, I'll point them out. It says, the king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple. Notice that. Have a chain of gold around his neck. Notice that. And shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Notice that. These, what I told you to notice, uh, we find them exactly in the same way elsewhere in the Bible in Genesis. In Genesis 41, it says this about Joseph after Joseph uh, interprets Pharaoh's dream. It says this, You shall be over my house, Joseph, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. The same words, same phrases are used of both Daniel and Joseph. It's like Daniel, as he's looking back and writing this later on in his life, is choosing these words and phrases that match the exact same phrases and words in Genesis chapter 41. So what's the point? Why is Daniel doing this? Daniel realizes that his life, what's happening in his life, is patterned after Joseph's life. It's almost like he's another Joseph, another iteration of Joseph, another, uh, another exile who's been put in a place of influence and power to bring about blessing for God's people and for God's enemies. There's tons of parallels between Daniel and Joseph. They both interpret dreams. They're both taken from their homes. They're both proven to be superior over other diviners and enchanters, and they both serve in the king's court in a hostile, in a hostile empire. Daniel's life is patterned after Joseph, but this pattern of, of prophets who are put in this position of power and who are meant to be a blessing for God's people and God's enemies, that pattern does not terminate 
with Daniel. Daniel simply points to someone beyond himself, someone who is the, the climax of that pattern, who fulfills the entire pattern, who, who puts an end to that pattern, and it's this. It's the one who takes off his golden crown. It's the one who takes off his robes of purple and fine linen and becomes an exile to bless God's people and to bless his enemies by dying for God's enemies and by dying for God's people. All of these items, the lampstand, the hand, this prophet, they're not meant to just teach us these general vague truths about God, that he is faithful, that he is there when it's, when it's bleak, that he is present. Those are nice theories. Those are nice abstracts. But if they don't find their fulfillment in actual flesh and blood, if they don't find their fulfillment in actual streamline of history, then that's all they are is just mere wishes. That's all they are is just nice thoughts. These are not just nice thoughts, though, because Jesus fulfills each and every one of these because he is the lampstand, because he is the hand, because he is the prophet. We know that God is actually faithful, that God is actually reliable, that we can actually build our life on him and he will not let us down. So what is true hope? What is true hope? I haven't said it yet, but here's what it is. It is the promise of security that we are going to be okay, that we're going to be taken care of, that has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. And who God is, his faithfulness, his capability, his power, that's all verified by Jesus, who is the lampstand, the hand, and the prophet. So we have true hope. It's going to be okay no matter what because it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God, who's been verified by Christ. If you believe this, and if you decide to cease putting your hope in things that will never work out, that will only create anxiety and desperation, if you bring Jesus, the sure and steady foundation, into the center of your life, it will produce remarkable things in you. Just like faulty hope produces terrible things in us, true hope produces remarkable things in us. And that's what we see in Daniel. Daniel embodies this remarkable hope. It has done this amazing transformation in him. And I want to point out those things really quickly here. What does it produce? First thing we see in Daniel is this radical contentment. Contentment. So recall the story that Belshazzar, he sees this handwriting on the wall. He freaks out. He's approached by the queen, who's either his mother or grandmother, and he's told about Daniel. Now you have to pause and you have to ask yourself, why doesn't Belshazzar know about Daniel? I mean, Daniel's done this a number of times. Daniel's been proven to be reliable. Why doesn't he know about Daniel? I mean, he's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He's one of the kings. He should know about these things. It's the only conclusion we can come to is that Daniel's been forgotten. That over the past two decades, as new kings have come into power, Daniel has been forgotten, that he's no longer installed in the place he was in. And so, forgotten Daniel, Daniel who has just been left to 
blend into obscurity, approaches King Belshazzar. He hears the pitch, interpret this dream, and if you interpret it, I'm going to give you, you know, gold and robes, and I'll make you third ruler in the kingdom. He makes this amazing pitch. And so how does Daniel respond in verse 17? This is, I think, really incredible. He says, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Keep your rewards, but I'm happy to help anyway. I don't need those things, but I'm here to help anyway. Now, can you imagine what you would do or what I would do in this situation? We've been forgotten for 23 years. We've, we've been so crucial to the stability and the vitality of this kingdom, and for it, we've been forgotten. Can you imagine what you would do in this situation? It would be very easy to now get it all back. This is it. This is my chance to reclaim what is actually mine. Or really more than likely is this is my chance to snub the person who snubbed me. To get even with the person who just, who just, wash, who just you know, wiped me away. We'd be tempted to seize it all or to snub that person. But here's Daniel who does neither. He is fine. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need to be restored. And he doesn't need to get even. He's happy to help. (sighs) Pretty radical. Pretty remarkable. And so what is the explanation for this state of being? And the only explanation is this, that Daniel's prestige his sense of honor, his security, his glory. He must believe that he has it all already. He he must believe that he doesn't need any of that from the Babylonian Empire because he has it all already in his hope in God. And so here's the prestige. Here's the glory that Daniel is destined for and that we know now are destined for. Here is our glory. Romans 8, 16, 17 says this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Think about that. Here is your future. Here is your forever and ever and ever. A renewed world. All is yours. Everything is yours. Ultimate triumph, newness, no more sin, no more injustice, no more sadness, just glory. That is our destiny. That is our inheritance. And when we believe that that is our glory and that is our prestige and that is our honor, then we're fine not getting it now. We don't need it now. We don't need to seize it. We don't need to snub anybody. We don't need to get even. We can just live in this place of contentment knowing that whatever I pass on now, whatever I don't get now, it's okay because I get it all one day as a co-heir with Christ. And so our hope produce, truly produces within us this radical stability, this amazing contentment, but not only contentment, but also this peculiar wisdom. That's what Daniel also embodies. Wisdom. There's this um, intentional, it's funny, there's this intentional play on words here in this story. You remember that Belshazzar's loins loosened and he goes to the bathroom due to the fear when he saw this hand? Well, in verse 12, the same words appear actually when the queen approaches Belshazzar. She says this in verse 12, 
that Daniel can help because an excellent spirit, knowledgeable and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. And the actual language there for solve problems is loosen knots. They were found in Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. So the word for solve is the same word for gave way or loosened in verse 6. It's like, it's like what the unmanageable and the out of control, what those things produce in Belshazzar, this anxiety and desperation, this undoing. For Daniel, though, in contrast, it shows us that he is able to handle them. Not that they master him, not that they control him, not that they determine what he does, but rather that he has the calmness, that he has the stillness, that he has the wisdom to slow down and make sense of the chaos. It's the difference between reacting and responding. That's what our hope produces in us. Look, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. There's a lot of very knowledgeable people who are not wise. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what you know. So look, if your source of hope is in people or if it's in things, then when the carpet is pulled out from underneath you, you will not have the clear-headedness. You will not have the calmness to think straight. Your judgment will be clouded. But if your hope is in God and you are content with whatever happens, because you're not looking for your security in the here and now, you have it all already in your future glory, then you will have, like Daniel, the unique ability to remain calm, to think clearly, and to speak precisely. And instead of life mastering you, instead of being commanded by your circumstances, you master life and you command your circumstances. You know what to do with what you know instead of freaking out. That's what our hope produces in us, this incredible wisdom where life slows down for us and we are tactical with life. So if you're, con- if you're content and if you're wise, then you'll naturally do what Daniel demonstrates last. You will have a life that is characterized by victory. You'll have a life that is characterized by triumph. Look at verses 29 through 31 after Daniel renders the interpretation uh, of the message. He, write, he writes this in, in 29 through 31. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Daniel succeeds. He is made third ruler in the kingdom. He is reestablished to that place of, of influence in the kingdom. There's this, book, uh, there's this verse in the book of Proverbs that I think captures what's happening here and what's, I think, paradigmatic for us. And it's this, uh, Proverbs 16, 7 uh, says this, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. So here's what's happening. When our, when our hope in God is so real to us, when it is brought into the very center of our life, it puts within us contentment. It puts within us wisdom. You know what that kind of person is? They're impressive. And more than that, they are, they're, they're deemed essential. That person is needed. And what happens then? You succeed. 
you rise and you emerge as a leader, you emerge as influential, you emerge as essential. And I want to be careful because I don't want to, you know, promise anything that's not promised. This is just simply a pattern in the Bible. It's not a promise in the Bible. I don't want to be misunderstood here. But listen, us as exiles, according to this pattern we see here, we should want to succeed. We should pursue places of influence because we as exiles are purposed to bring about God's kingdom on earth and purposed to bless God's people and bless God's enemies. And that's what's happening here. Daniel succeeds. He rises to the ranks. His power is restored to him so that what? So that he can represent God still in a dark, a dark, a dark age. And as long as your hope in God remains your actual hope, your actual hope, then listen, it will be safe for you to triumph. It will be safe for you to succeed because it won't go to your head. It won't become an idol because you're already content and your wisdom will enable you to see any potential pitfalls that your victory and that your success and your influence will bring about. So this is this predictable pattern where exiles who are content and wise ultimately emerge as victorious. It's not a promise, but it's a pattern. But here's what is a promise. That's just the, for the here and now. That success, that's temporary. It's just present. Ultimately, the triumph of Daniel's life, the triumph of our life is that we will outlast Babylon, just like Daniel outlasted Babylon. What this means is this. There will be a day where each and every one of us who are in Christ with, with our own eyes and resurrected bodies, we'll look out into a world, into a reality that no longer is, there's no longer Babylon. No longer has sadness, no longer has injustice, no longer has immoral, no longer has any of these things that are challenging for us. There will be a day where we are victorious over sin and evil and all of those things. Because God is faithful because he is our source of hope, because it's not up to us, it's up to him. And so listen, you know, I, I don't want to just teach the Bible and make these connections and, and uh, preach a good sermon. <laughs> I want to, my prayers, I want to preach an effective sermon. I want this to matter for your life. I want you to actually leave here, not just with head knowledge and not just more information, but actually deeply formed, actually changed. The question you have to grapple with is what is your source of hope? What are you putting your sense of security in? Is your life filled with anxiety? Is your life filled with just desperation, longing and seizing and grasping for straws? That's not God's will for your life. Neither is stoicism, just being detached and aloof and unaffected by anything. No, but is there an actual lightness, a thanksgiving, a resilience to your life because of the hope that you have in Jesus? And so your question you have to grapple with is where are you putting your hope? And your step is this, to turn from those things and to turn to Jesus to actually identify where you are settling. Those things that are creating anxiety and desperation, to turn from those things and cease investing yourself in those things so deeply and begin investing yourself in the one true hope that will not let you down. Not now and definitely 
Never, ever, 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 ever in eternity. All right? And so, what's your true hope? Let's pray. God, we ask that you would not just fill our heads, but that you would change our hearts and that you would truly become our hope. You, Christ, are the sure and steady foundation who is worthy to build our life on. Nothing else will work. Everything else is sand. You are the only rock. So God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the humility to turn from the things that are not working and to put our hope in you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.